Welcome to the CEC report for the 21st of June 2019. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Elisa. And on today's show we have fascist laws serve bankers dictatorship and G20 summit must propose a new economic architecture before this one blows up. So firstly today, fascist laws serve bankers dictatorship. Now, there's a financial crash coming, a new global crisis, because the issues since the last one were never resolved, and we'll update you on that uh, shortly. So the financial establishment is ushering in, or has been ushering in for a while now, uh, it's kind of a, a mission creep or policy creep, yeah. uh, various extra powers that they can use to deal with the situation under conditions of crisis and a rebellion amongst the population. And that includes, of course, providing emergency powers to our regulator, APRA, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, during a financial crisis, and which we've said many times, can allow them to steal investments and deposits of people as it does overseas. And that was done on the Feb 14th of February last year, Elisa, when the parliament, with only about seven members in the Senate, passed legislation that, that we know, you know, from the way the legislation is mm. written, has given the, the, uh, the banks the power Mm. to bail in deposits. That is, they have the right to take your deposits under circumstances where they are threatened, and where their finances are threatened. Yeah, and we're still fighting to have that amended to explicitly exclude deposits, yes. which the government claims it, they're excluded anyway, so they should be fine to pass that, we would hope, but we'll keep you updated on that fight. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, the other side of it are the new security laws, which are, as many people, including Andrew Wilkie, have said, bringing in a police state. That's yeah. the status of this country. Um, so just by way of update, uh, of course, as we all know, and we reported on last week's show, we've had journalists, uh, media operations raided in this country a few weeks ago, and we reported on that extensively. So watch that from last week's show if you haven't. Uh, now, that was concerning, uh, well, one of the raids of Anika Smithhurst uh, of News Corp concerned a story about whether the Australian Signals Director would be given the powers to spy on Australian citizens. Right mm -hmm. now they can only spy on overseas citizens and they work with Five Eyes arrangements to do that, which is the US, UK, Canada, Australia and New Zealand yeah. International Spying Club. Um, but Peter Dutton, the Home Affairs Minister, um, <laughs> in one breath tried to you know, deny that that was still being considered and then he ended up basically saying we do want to continue discussing this because it's required uh, on Insiders on Sunday and we'll just roll that clip. Let's go to the Annika Smith, her story about the extension of powers um, uh, for the um, uh, Australian Signals Directorate. You said that that story was inaccurate. Yes. Um, it seems to be still kicking around as an idea in government. Do you support the ASD having powers to investigate domestically? Well, well I think there are two points here. I mean, one is that uh, the raids and that, that aspect which we've dealt with. The second point is the accuracy of the article. And I, I made the point, I think, at the time that, uh, that it wasn't accurate. Now, But was uh, the government considering extending powers and is it considering extending powers for the ASD to practice domestically? Well, if you look back to what I said at the time, uh, we don't support uh, spying on Australians. That was a complete nonsense. But where you've got a paedophile network that operates out of Manila, live streaming children being sexually abused, there might be the ability for an Australian agency to try and shut that server down. If that same server was operating in Fitzroy here in Melbourne, then there would be very limited capacity for us in certain circumstances where it was masked, uh, where it was rerouted and all the rest of it, uh, that we weren't able to shut that pedophile network down. Uh, similarly, in relation to 
uh, a cyber attack on our Australian banks if people weren't able to tap and go and pay mm. uh, and conduct their business for four or five days if the system was out. I think people would buy, probably buy about the second or third hour, let alone day, be demanding what is the government going to do to put this back online. Now, at the moment, we don't have the sophistication or capacity to be able to, uh, to mount a counter-attack or to uh, be able to have the technical capacity uh, to be able to deal with that. Now, of course, AFP have all the powers they need to target pedophilia rings. It's not like they don't already. Um, also note that he referenced um, a cyber attack on the banks, so keep that in mind. We'll come back to that. But he does, of course, go on to say that he wanted to continue to have a sensible discussion about you know, the new powers that are required. So they do acknowledge that this is on the go. Um, now, of course, they always said that journalists would never be targeted by this. And here we have a clip of government MP Kate Ellis in 2014 on Q&A saying, oh, no, we'd never do anything that would stop journalists telling the truth. What I am saying is that Labor would never support laws which prevent journalists who work reporting national security from being able to do their job. But Craig, it's not just journalists. That's the point that you no. made, you and Robbie made on last week's show, because the definition of terrorism extends to those who may threaten the financial system. Yeah, it's very, very broad, Lisa. And look, the point is, you look at these clips, you look at what Dutton is doing. I think the Liberal Party has become more cocky since it's got back in. He wasn't expecting to get back in. Uh, you look at the Royal Commission and the criminality inside the banks. We know the Liberal Party is the bankers' party and mm -hmm. they intend to protect their mates. Yep. And speaking uh, of the bankers' party, uh, I want to take a quick detour to look at uh, the machinations of mm -hmm. the bankers' uh, framework that we have in place today, which is top-down, and Australia's banking networks operate under the jurisdiction of uh, vast international bodies yeah, that's, yeah. that are not under the jurisdiction of any national government. Um, so I want to start by quoting Franklin Roosevelt. This is from his speech to the Congress on curbing monopolies, April 29, 1938. He said, the first truth is that the liberty of a democracy is not safe if the people tolerate the growth of private power to a point where it becomes stronger than their democratic state itself. That in its essence is fascism. Ownership of government by an individual, by a group, or by any other controlling private power. And nowhere is that more the case, which Roosevelt was fighting at the time, than the establishment of the Bank for International Settlements, which designed the bail-in laws in Australia today. Um, and there, the biggest premise of establishing the BIS was that you would create an entity that was independent of government, that, but that would dictate to government and, of course, the Bank of England Governor, Montague Norman, was the key guy in setting up the Bank for International Settlements. In 1921, he said, autonomy and freedom from political control are desirable for all central and reserve banks. So under the uh, authority of the BIS, other central and reserve banks would have that same authority. Of course, the co-founder of that bank of international settlements was German Reichsbank president and later economics minister for Hitler, Helmar shocked. And um, uh, of course, throughout the war, the Bank for International Settlements was critical in Nazi Germany continuing. It had been cut off from almost any, every kind of finance that it could get from overseas, except for the BIS, who allowed the transfers of gold from the countries that Hitler conquered mm -hmm. into the coffers in Berlin. And in fact, Helmer, uh, sorry, um, Montague Norman insisted it be done. He said, as long as the paper, if the paperwork was in order, we had to do it because banks 
could not be beholden to any other political say-so. They had to follow the rules of the game. So, of course, the BIS was founded by international charter by governments, but then it was perfectly independent. So, independently, as a body of above government, it was able to tell governments what to do and its charter made it untouchable. It had diplomatic immunity, tax exemption, and there was no national jurisdiction that could uh, go in and raid it or do anything whatsoever. It was described as beyond the reach of either national or international law by Adam Libor, who wrote a biography of the bank. Now, fast forward to the creation of APRA because APRA is a branch essentially of the Bank for International Settlements and when you look at all its secrecy provisions, it exactly operates under that same model. And in 2012, there was a Bank for International Settlements doc document on banking supervision. This was when Wayne Byers, the now head of APRA, was the head of the banking committee that wrote this document, which said there must be no government or industry interference which compromises the operational independence of the supervisor. Uh, and of course, Another one of the provisions that APRA has is they can tell the government what to do. Uh, in 20, 2003, the APRA Act was changed to allow APRA to advise the Treasurer, yep. which means tell him what to do uh, on a certain course of action. Previously, he could only do it if a bank was in trouble and there was a specific need for intervention. Now it can be done on the initiative of APRA. For a long time, Elisa, you know, the Labor Party, the old Labor Party, really resisted any sort of interference in the sovereignty of Australia. It, you know, Chifley uh, in particular didn't want Australia to join the United Nations, right? And he hated the idea of central banking because, and he saw this coming, because look what the Commonwealth Bank did do during the war. It mm. was an actual tool of the government, not the other way around. The government was not the tool of the Commonwealth Bank. So you had the ability of the government to direct the Commonwealth Bank, and particularly during the war, to actually support the economy, to, create, to, to provide the necessary credit to build up the economy. And the, the private banks were kept under control. And that's the yeah. last thing they wanted. And of course, we come forward to about 1959, that entire structure, the Commonwealth Bank was dismantled. You got the reserve, but you actually had the formation of central banks, the Reserve Bank at that time. And from this point forward, the, the, the government has been exactly beholden to the private banking interests. Now, the Reserve yeah. Bank's not a private bank, it's government owned, but it's run by private bankers. They're, they all sit on it. And it's so-called independence. And so-called, yeah, model. the independence that came, I think it was in 1997, you know, mm. the independence of the Reserve Bank has to be preserved. In other words, don't allow the government to touch banking, which goes back to these fascist ideas of you know, yeah. Norman. Well, so you add to that that you've just mapped out the security apparatus that mm. is dictating our security laws because uh, as Paul Keating has said, foreign policy, and others have said, is being dictated by the security agencies, the intelligence agencies. But who are they being dictated to? Well, the Five Eyes, as we've got an article that shows in our alert service this week how that operates, because the Five Eyes is another example of an unelected private body dictating policy from overseas. Again, mm -hmm. the very definition of fascism as Roosevelt described it. So, um, and of course, one of the powers they wanted to give the Australian Signals Directorate was the ability, as Smethurst reported it, to spy on people's bank accounts. So you really begin to wonder, um, you know, APRA is the body that supervises and looks at all the figures of banks to pull it together for the Australian Bureau of Statistics and the RBA. When these guys start working together, the banks and the security agencies, what don't they have the capability to do? Mm. So we'll stop there for a moment. We'll come back to uh, discuss the 
global dimensions of the financial crisis. Welcome back to the CEC report. Now we're discussing G20 summit must propose a new economic architecture before this one blows up. And so the G20 summit's coming up at the 28th and 29th of this month and we'll come to that in a moment about yeah. what the potential is of what could be done um, preemptively to stop a crisis. But firstly, just to run over some of the updates financially, um, there was a warning from New York uh, University economics professor Nuriel Rubini this week who said, talked about um, increasing trade war, uh, growing risk of debt bubbles, and he said under such a scenario the shock to markets around the world would be sufficient to bring on a global crisis regardless of what the major central banks do. There were also warnings last week from Bank of America's Brian Moynihan uh, who warned of the usual carnage if the corporate debt bubble blows. Uh, now, Bank of America is the biggest leveraged lender and, of course, all these warnings are coming around the massive corporate de debt bubble that's been built up in the US, which we'll show in a couple of graphs here. Um, this first one, based on IMF figures, shows how the leveraged debt, which is the highly risky debt in the corporate sector, has risen back to the pre-GFC levels. And then this, the other two, the next two graphs show the shadow bank risk. This is where you've got unregulated non-banks that are packaging up, so that could be private equity firms, yeah. insurance companies, all kinds. They're packaging up US corporate debt at a record rate, just as how it was done with mortgages back in 2007-08. Um, but of course, actual banks are lending to the non-banks so that they can do that. That's one of the fastest growing categories of uh, profit for banks lending to those non-banks. Back in the, before the GFC, it was collateralized debt obligations, right, which were the mortgages were bundled up and sold as speculative, as derivatives, right? Mm. Now they're called collateralized loan obligations. Big difference. Corporate <laughs> debt, same, same, same idea, same mechanism, the same potential to blow up the system. Yeah, and there were US congressional hearings on the topic on the 4th of June, which was headlined, Emerging Threats to Stability Considering the Systemic Risk of Leveraged Lending. Mm. And while they didn't have any solutions, many of the speakers spoke about an impending financial explosion. The chairman, uh, Democrat Gregory Meeks, asked, what happens if you have multiple Toys R Us all at one time? That was, of course, the big company that collapsed in 2017. And a lot of these corporations are so loaded with debt you get more than one that goes down, there's going to be trouble. And they showed this graphic actually here, which is the um, corporate bonds that are issued. And you see in the grey section in the middle, the growing uh, quantity of these bonds that are triple B rated. Those are the bonds that, if they're downgraded by one notch, go into junk status. And if a wave of that occurs, which would happen in a recession, uh, that will set off the whole debt bubble to burst. Now, speaking of debt bubbles, Deutsche Bank, um, which has been in trouble for some time, its shares down more than 90% since their peak. Um, it's been on death watch, as we've said, for a long time, has had to split off, hive away some of its bad debts into a bad bank. They had to do this once before, and there was a lot of that that went on after 2008, but it hasn't happened at all for more than five years. A lot of the long-term derivatives contracts it carries that can be quote-unquote tricky to unwind according to one insider will be in that unit. So it's, it's really not going to solve anything. 
And the other thing that's not going to solve anything, Craig, is quantitative easing. There's been a new recommitment to do whatever it takes to keep the bubble afloat from uh, Europe and from the United States. And from Australia, all the signs are going in that direction. Um, the Reserve Bank, according to John Keogh in the Australian Financial Review last week, has extreme stimulus measures on standby. And there's been an article that's just come out from uh, Dr Stephen Kirchner from the United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney, who said in a new paper that Australia could cut its cash rate two and a half percentage points below zero. So negative that, interest rates. So that means retirees that have put their money in the bank have to pay the bank 2.5% of whatever's in there in order to keep their money in the bank. Yeah, and he's, he's advocating this along with quantitative easing as well. Um, he actually says the US Fed didn't go far enough during the GFC. What they did was in the lower bounds of what's possible. He said there is no in principle limit to how much quantitative easing a central bank can do. It is always possible to do more. Uh, and this idea has also been backed by JP Morgan Chief Economist Sally Old and KPMG analysts, so it's in the news quite a bit at the moment. Now this, of course, is extremely reckless, Craig, and it's also not going to do much to prop up the sector they're trying to prop up at the moment, which is the housing bubble. Yeah, look, all of this is devoid of the real physical economy. All this is speculation, right? The question becomes, what we, got, what we introduced a segment, you know, the past segment, the control of the financial system has been hived off to private interests and they're only concerned about making their own profits, keeping themselves alive. What we need in this country is a national bank on the model of the Commonwealth Bank that controls the private banks. Now, we've written legislation for this. We've got our Glass-Steagall legislation in the mm -hmm. Parliament right now, which separates out the necessary banking system that we need, the, the commercial banking system, from all the high-risk stuff, right? What the Reserve Bank is doing is propping up the high risk, the speculation, mm -hmm. the rotten part of the system. Uh, look, this is going to come down. Whether they do quantitative easing or whatever, the underlying yep. process of supporting our economy is not happening. And therefore, there's all sorts of shocks are, are about to descend upon us. Yeah, and quantitative easing will essentially make the problem worse when it finally hits because it's just pouring more hot air into the bubble yeah. Um, mm. and yeah, the impact on the people. I think over be... the next couple of weeks it's become more and more clear that just how bad the economy is, mm. Lisa. Yeah, exactly. Now we'll keep talking about this after this short break. Welcome back to the CEC report where we're discussing the urgent need for a new financial architecture. Um, Look, it's time to rip up the rule book when it comes to economic policy. And one person who did that uh, during the 1930s crisis was, again, Franklin Roosevelt. And I want to quote from him from a 1932 speech. And he was talking about the housing crisis. He said, The Republican leaders tell us economic laws, sacred, inviolable, unchangeable, cause panics which no one could prevent. But while they prate of economic laws, men and women are starving. We must lay hold of the fact that economic laws are not made by nature. They are made by human beings. Mm. Now, this is what we have to assess and take stock of today. And it has just happened in Italy. Um, Senator Alberto Bagnet echoed that statement by Roosevelt this week when he called for a radical change of course in economic policy. He said that rules are not neutral or objective, but reflect the power of, uh, sorry, reflect the power relations prevailing at the time of their adoption. And he was saying this because Italy's 
China battle the European Union at the moment, which restricts how much debt they can have, how big the deficit can be. And you can read more about it in the Australian Alert Service this week. But they've just put up a proposal where they would create special treasury bills to pay off government creditors. Those creditors can use those treasury bills to pay their taxes. Mm. So it's like a, a discount voucher. And then what uh, if they've paid all their taxes, they can actually pay another vendor or creditor of their own who can then pay their taxes. It's like another form of money outside the euro. Yeah, and That's the EU's doing. going berserk about it because, oh, it's not a debt, so no. they can't say oh, you're going beyond the debt rules. And it's also not a currency, although they're trying to say it's a precursor to Ital exits for the yeah. Italy leaving the exit. Um, but in any case, uh, what Italy's doing here is challenging the EU's transgression of sovereignty and saying we've got to be able to have the power to decide what's best for our people. Now this came up also at the St Petersburg International Economic Forum which happened on the 6th to 8th of June uh, in Russia and Putin uh, made a very stunning speech actually which again you can read about in the alert service where he said look the whole model of globalization has failed that became very obvious in 2008 because mm -hmm. you've got developing countries that are emerging and the, um, the developed countries are losing their share of the market and they're doing all sorts of things from sanctioning countries to trade wars, um, trying to you know, keep hold of their share of the market by restricting other companies like Huawei in the Huawei case, etc., in order to keep the old system. And he also mentioned the fact that quantitative easing just shoved the crisis into the future. So nothing was done after 2008, he said, to deal with this. And he was backed up by the Chinese president, Xi Jinping. And they both called for a new, more stable and fair development model. And this is what we're saying should be discussed at the upcoming G20 summit. Um, Putin and Xi both met with the Indian President Modi uh, at the Shanghai Cooperation Summit on the 13th to 14th of June and those three powers, China, Russia and India, are going to meet on the sidelines of the G20. If you could somehow bring the US into that arrangement, that would be enough of a power structure, which we call the four powers, to totally rewrite the rules of the global financial architecture. Yeah. Would Trump be in it? Well, we do know he's willing to break the rules. But that doesn't mean he's going to do the no, right thing by any means. Coming to his president. Look, Elisa, the issue here is sovereignty. And this is what Trump and Xi Jinping are very strong about. This is what the, the base their development around globally with the, the One Belt, One Road proposal, right? The, the old BRICS proposal, Brazil, Russia, Russia, India, China and South Africa. I mean, it's not old. They're still very much functioning, very much developing. And look, it's all built around sovereignty. You have to have... For nations to develop, they have to have control over their, 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 their financial system, which is what Italy is starting to express now by saying, look, we, we don't want to be strangled by this supranational institution like the Economic Union. We've got, in some cases, unelected bureaucrats dictating the policy yes. of, a, of a sovereign country. So you have these forces for sovereignty opposed to the dictatorship, the, the fascist forces that we've already outlined in this program coming to a head. Now, they can pump as much money into the system, but at the end of the day, it's the principle. Do governments represent the people mm -hmm. or do they represent the private interests? That's right. And this is what Scott Morrison is going to be, uh, you know, back, back, bashing his head up against here in Australia very shortly. Mm. We represent, of course, the model where governments must represent the people and we must bring the financial system under the control of government.
That's right. That's a radical turnaround. Governments have to have the discretion to do what's right under changing circumstances for the people. And speaking of the people, get involved. Call in and get a copy of our newsletter. And there's many ways you can join our mobilisation. If you go to our website, you should be hounding your Member of Parliament about these matters. So thanks for tuning in. It's all we've got time for. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Join us again next week. Thank you.